you're looking at around 80 to 90% decline in GDP of countries like India and Brazil. The solutions exist today to get us 80% of the way to net zero. That gives us multiple touch points at which we're able to say to those companies, we're not entirely comfortable with the direction of travel that you're taking with respect to climate. Hello. Emissions targets, carbon pricing, the fair financing of climate transition. These are just some of the difficult problems that political leaders and their representatives are wrestling with at COP26 in Glasgow. And every issue around climate change comes with its own complexities and arguments, both at the international and domestic level. With so many variables, how can investors hope to find their way? Today on the podcast, we're laying out a framework for climate asset allocation. We hear from Fidelity International's macroeconomics team with practical solutions, as well as from two portfolio managers who already invest with climate-focused strategies. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's asset allocation podcast. Well, joining me today are Salman Ahmed, Global Head of Macro and Strategic Asset Allocation, Cornelia Furst, an Equity Portfolio Manager with a focus on climate-related technology, and Chris Atkinson, a Fixed Income Portfolio Manager, looking at the financing of decarbonisation. Welcome to you all. Hello, Hello Richard. Richard. Now, we're all watching what's happening at COP26. Can you give me one single issue that you want to hear from uh, the people who are taking part there? Chris, let me start with you. The, the single issue that I'm looking for is a solution to the uh, the pricing of uh, of carbon, or at least progress in in that direction. Uh, clearly, uh, carbon pricing is uh, one of the most critical elements for uh, achieving net zero. Um, and currently, we have less than 25% of the world's emissions uh, covered by carbon pricing regimes, um, and the price of those uh, systems is is way too low. Uh, what about you, Cornelia? So I. Th- I think it goes without saying that I'm looking for more meaningful commitments, um, but not just more meaningful commitments, more granularity as to how these countries are going to meet those commitments. So where subsidies are going to be available and levers like, as Chris said, carbon pricing to make that happen. And Salman, I guess you have to synthesise what you're seeing as you um, build your macroeconomic picture of what's going on. But what, what are you hoping for? Well, uh, I agree with Chris and Cornelius. Um, basically, carbon prices are important. Uh, for, and, and to become a macro-relevant variable, they have to rise from their very extremely low levels, so $3 per tonne globally at the moment. And also the supporting infrastructure uh, and, and framework to make that possible. And that's the devil in the detail. Just saying carbon prices are going up is not going to be enough. Okay, well, let's um, move on then, Salman, because I'm going to stay with you, because you spend a lot of time devising practical ways for investors to incorporate climate change into their portfolios. Now, of course, these can be incredibly complex issues. What have you come up with briefly and how should they implement your ideas? So we are looking at uh, how to incorporate climate change pathways into our strategic asset allocation frameworks. uh, And we are developing a cross-disciplinary exercise to be able to do that in terms of connecting the science of uh, climate change and its impact on macro variables of interest, specifically growth and inflation, not for the next few years, but going into the next decades, based on our best understanding of how the different forces play out. And here within the modeling, carbon prices are important and, and also are the policy frameworks uh, and technology adoption rates. Uh, and, and they play their role in terms of shaping long-term risk and return and projections for the different asset classes across the different regions. Well, I suppose it's a very dynamic 
picture, isn't it? Definitely. It's very dynamic, both in terms of uh, uh, the geographical dimensions of this problem. Let's not forget that climate change is at its core a geographical problem and not every country is as vulnerable uh, to climate change as it is commonly uh, uh, you know, shared. And then the other point is that policy and the political economy of policy is also very important because some of these policy choices are going to be very painful if they are done uh, rapidly or are done under in a ill-advised manner. So to be able to capture that, I think uh, importance of an anchor framework is critical. And what's the transmission mechanism? When we look at things like the inflationary impact, can you explain that a little bit more? Definitely. This has come on the table uh, very recently with the increase in uh, energy prices uh, in Europe. And, and increasingly, people are focused on and investors are focused on the role carbon prices are also playing uh, in, in contributing to that rise. So this is a very important example of the trade-off, which is that carbon prices certainly have to rise and are uh, and we have to price carbon emissions appropriately. But the link with inflation is also clear. And that's where governments will have to take a decision in terms of the trade-offs. And we have models now to project uh, uh, these impl- inflationary impulses. And those are meaningful numbers, around 150 to 200 basis points for Europe and US, and more than 400 basis point impulse due to climate change policies for a number of EM countries like China. Which is very significant and um, pretty disturbing to hear. Countering that inflationary pressure, though, perhaps, is technology. It could help, couldn't it? Definitely. That's the key uh, unknown variable from a macro perspective. Uh, Usually, economists uh, model this as an exogenous variable, which doesn't help. Uh, But uh, policies can play a big role in incentivizing and and, and subsidizing the adoption rates. uh, Having a solution to to capture, for example, carbon is, is a very good first step. But it's the commercial and macro adoption of of that technology which matters from a top-down perspective. So certainly for a given level of technological development, that that can also have an impact on what kind of pathway we need on carbon prices to achieve uh, uh, the Paris goals, for example. Well, let's um, move from that macro picture, Salman. Thank you to Cornelia, because the technology side of this, that's your bread and butter, isn't it? Um, Spotting the technology of the future that's going to help the world reach the Paris Accord of no more than one and a half degrees of global warming. So how confident are you that innovation will have an impact on the scenarios that someone's just set out. Yeah, so I think it's it's worth saying up front, technology is what is going to get us to net zero. Nobody's expecting us to go back to sort of pre-industrial levels of activity and productivity. Um, but we do need broad technology adoption across every aspect of our lives. Um, and... And what we see today is that even where there is technology available, not all of which represents incremental cost, I might add, um, we need to see it more broadly adopted. We need to see those adoption levels get closer to 100% to help us meet net zero. And in some cases, um, uh, that might be achieved with technologies that are not yet commercial today, so um, will represent additional costs to the consumer or perhaps will be funded and supported by governments in the initial stages. But it also represents technologies which are today um, cost competitive with traditional legacy business models, things like renewables, which are today cheaper than thermal technology in most regions globally, or building insulation, which offers a decent payback for building owners, um, or industrial automation, 
which reduces energy consumption and improves yields of manufacturing processes and therefore um, can save the customer's money in the end. Um, and what about the leap of faith technology that you were um, alluding to, the things that aren't yet commercially viable or, or, or maybe um, haven't properly been developed yet? Um, can you give some examples there that you're expecting to take off? Yes. Yeah, so the one that springs to mind immediately um, is green hydrogen. This is a particularly exciting technology um, because it can provide solutions for areas which are currently hard to decarbonize. There are no existing solutions. Um, but that said, it is not yet economic. So if we take some of the figures provided by um, one of the companies that manufactures um, hydrogen, both in a traditional way, grey hydrogen and green hydrogen, um, it's more than four times more expensive to manufacture green hydrogen as opposed to grey hydrogen. But as we've seen with renewables, um, these are technologies which can get to cost parity, but we need scale in order to get to that point. And that's where subsidies play a role. If we can see good support, good financial support for these technologies in the form of subsidies, that increases scale, which reduces costs, which increases adoption, and you have this virtuous cycle, and we get to a point where they are cost competitive. That's the vital role of governments that um, you know we hope is going to uh, going to be addressed properly by politicians. But um, when you're looking at innovation in the companies that you cover, is it is innovation speeding up? Is it is it fast enough? Is it going to get us there? You said that we're going to be delivered by technology, but um, is it happening quickly enough? The pace of innovation is definitely accelerating and we see this in certain pockets. So a great example of this is in consumer packaging solutions. This is an area where um, the consumer staples companies have all made commitments in terms of the percentage of recycled packaging they want to be, uh, or recyclable packaging um, they want to be using by 2025. But the solutions don't really exist today. And so what we're seeing is that with the visibility provided by these commitments from the consumer staples companies, we're seeing a huge amount of innovation in this space in the form of um, recycling technologies, but also alternative materials. So things like bioplastics that can biodegrade and that have a lower emissions footprint in the manufacturing process. OK, let's get the fixed income view. I want to come to, um, to Chris now. Tell me about the green financing that businesses are developing. Which sectors are the most likely candidates to help temper the, um, uh, the, the damage, the inflationary forces uh, that someone was talking about earlier? If we think about the, uh, the, the green bond space as a sort of an indicator of green financing, you know, roughly 50% of that market is uh, sovereigns and uh, quasi-sovereigns. Um, and then the, the remaining 50% is, uh, is, is corporates and, and, and financials such as banks. When we look into those, uh, you know, drill down a little bit more detail into, into the uh, you know, non-sovereign space, you know, the biggest issuers uh, in that market have been utilities. And, and the reasons are, are fairly simple and straightforward. And Cornelia has already alluded to this, that uh, the technology is pretty well established. It's understood um, that, uh, you know, renewable generation is, you know, for most places in the world, the cheapest form of, of generation. And therefore, from the perspective of a bond investor, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a relatively simple investment to, uh, to finance. Away from uh, the utilities, um, it is 
is it's banks um, refinancing assets on on their portfolios, usually uh, real estate, um, and then uh, related to that, the the, the the real estate sector has become a much more active issuer in in recent years. Now the the, the problem there is that. Um, Often, what you're refinancing is assets that are already in the ground; they're already built. Um, so the additionality there is is somewhat limited. Um, you, you're not you know, reducing emissions, taking them out of uh, of the atmosphere. It's just refinancing an existing project that uh, happens to meet modern building standards and therefore is, um, you know, compliant with uh, modern uh, green bond standards. So, you know, those those are the sectors that are that are most active. But obviously, there are others that we need to 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 look to issue as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, real estate? Because this is the one that you're beginning to hear it more and more in conversation. But we always think about aeroplanes or cars or lorries when we're talking about um, carbon emissions. But actually, the built environment contributes about 40% of global emissions. So it's absolutely vital. Um, how do you expect real estate financing to um, uh, to contribute to the to the solution? Well, this is actually a really interesting sector. And, and as you say, the, the, the built environment is responsible for a significant uh, percentage of, uh, of, of global emissions. It actually works very well from a fixed income perspective because of the, the nature of uh, fixed income securities that you can invest in a secured way, an unsecured way, um, or, or even in a, in a subordinated uh, security. You can actually take exposure to those real estate assets at, at different um, uh, uh, levels in, in the, in the the capital structure and therefore adjust your your, your risk profile uh, in accordance with your appetite. So that's a theme that we've been exploring extensively um, uh, in the portfolio, looking to invest in, you know, for example, German you know real estate companies that have you know half a million residential apartments that they're looking to insulate to reduce emissions from, uh, which therefore has a, a material impact on um, on decarbonisation efforts. Uh, so that's that's something that we're looking to uh, to to address further in, uh, in in our fixed income portfolios. Okay, and transition funding, or transition first of all, and then the funding of it is a key key component to all of this. Yeah, transition is um, is is a is a challenging concept from a from a fixed income uh, investor's perspective. I think, as I alluded to uh, at the beginning of this conversation, you know, the green bond market it's grown tremendously. It's been a rapidly growing market, but it has yet to um, get comfortable with financing some of the high emission sectors. So things like um, you know, cement, uh, steel, uh, um, oil and gas, so um, you know, uh, energy more broadly, uh, have remained completely absent from the, uh, the green bond market. Uh, and of course, these are all companies and sectors that need to decarbonize in order for us to be successful in, in meeting our um, you know, Paris uh, commitments. So uh, th- those sectors, as I say, remain absent from the green bond market. So the, the, the uh, issuers have responded with innovation and are bringing new uh, innovative structures. So things like sustainability-linked notes, where you tie the coupon to the achievement of uh, reduction in carbon emissions, um, or as you say, transition um, uh, securities where there is a, a tighter voluntary framework around the achievement of um, a decarbonisation. Well, earlier I spoke to Fidelity International's Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, on the topic, and here's what he had to say. For 
us and looking at where we should invest and how these opportunities form. What it will do, and, and I hope that it brings about, is the uh, ability to look at those areas that need to transition quickly. Um, and I think that one thing we should never forget is that it's not just about green. It's about turning dark brown into lighter brown to green. So that transition framework of taking you know, some of the old infrastructure, taking some of the energy production that you know, really is not going to be how we can uh, achieve our goals in the future, actually converting that and gradually being on a pathway that can accelerate to a net zero um, environment. And also, you know, we shouldn't forget that um, you know, that is uh, you know, an admirable aim, but really we need to see negative emissions where they can be achieved um, compared to today. And that is, I think, the, the opportunity set that we're looking at. Where are those um, areas that we can both engage, intervene and help transition through time as much as investing into some of the technology and the infrastructure that will be truly part of the, the new economy of the future. It's an important point, isn't it, that we can't walk away from the, the dirty industries, um, the ones that at the moment are still churning out um, carbon into the, into the atmosphere. Um, and it fits with, I think, very closely with, um, with one of your themes about engagement over exclusion. It really does. And um, I think it's such a vital point that if we can engage with companies, with governments as well, because sovereigns are very important uh, in this process, to end up with... Uh, an environment where we are gradually moving you know, the most challenging areas of uh, the economy in terms of the output of carbon to, today um, and then accelerating that change as technology allows us to, as we see that the investment are actually producing the right outcomes. Because as always, if you have a virtuous process, it will allow you to accelerate, it will allow you to draw everyone in. But the challenge is that it has to be for everyone as well. If we do this in sort of isolated buckets, unfortunately, that will not be enough. Global CIO Andrew McCaffrey speaking there. You can hear the full interview published on the Rich Pickings channel. Now, Selman, uh, Andrew talks of the risks uh, of regions and sectors only working in isolation. That's not going to do it. Coming back to your scenarios, how do you account for the different approaches that countries are likely to take as they tackle climate change? So uh, this uh Potential divergence between how countries approach climate change mitigation is an important factor when we think about the scenarios uh, which may underpin our capital market assumptions. So one of the scenarios which we are working on quite closely is what is called the divergent net zero. Uh, and what that scenario entails is that, uh, uh, that different countries adopt both in terms of speed and in terms of the nature of policies they adopt when it comes to climate change mitigation uh, plays out uh, very differently. And we are trying to calibrate it to the best of our abilities, uh, what they may look like. Obviously, a lot of uncertainty and, of course, uh, the important role of political economy as well in terms of how that scenario plays out. But the underpinnings of, of thinking about that scenario uh, is certainly something which we are focused on. What impact will the disparity between developed and emerging markets have on asset allocation? How does that play out? So uh, if we believe the current state of climate science uh, and, and take that through into our uh, macro uh, models and then uh, and onwards to asset allocation uh, projections, uh, what we find is that uh, EM countries are very vulnerable. So that's the physical risk uh, element of climate change. And then on the other side, if you think about the transition risks, it's really led by the DM world uh, and, and, and the technology transfers and 
subsidies to the em world to reduce the emissions will be will be very important and i'm sure a very critical question which will be on the table at cop 26 so it does play out into the our scenarios we are envisaging uh and and what we find is in the extreme stress test uh, type scenarios like the rcp 8.5 which is where emissions f- uh, fail to come down meaningfully in the next uh, uh, over the next several decades then it's really the em countries uh, which are most vulnerable from a uh, growth hit perspective saman are you able to put a figure on what the cost of all this is it it varies from countries to country uh, so for example uh, under the rcp 8.5 uh, scenario which is uh, just to be clear that emissions continue to grow at the pace of last 10 20 years which is by no means our base case scenario given you know how the governments are responding and how the corporate sector the businesses are starting to think about it more more uh, more credibly uh, what we find is that under uh, a damage function approach you're looking at around 80 to 90% decline in gdp of countries like india and brazil around 40 to 50% decline in gdp of china and around 25 to 30% decline in gdp of us for example while the no, uh, the north european countries are seen as a beneficiary of climate change and one point i would mention here is that this is under assumption of chronic increases in temperature uh, right now unfortunately the modeling and the frameworks are not strong enough to take into account tipping point effects or extreme weather events which makes us think that these estimates are very conservative when it uh, when it comes to uh capturing the impact or the physical risk impact of climate change uh, these are conservative estimates i mean they're, they're mind-boggling as they are cornelia how on earth do you interpret these forecasts um as you choose where to um to invest your clients money so i think statistics like this really underpin um the fundamentals of the theme that we're investing in i.e. investing in the companies that have the solutions to decarbonization because it's not just you know willingness of developed markets to um subsidize subsidize these technologies or implement carbon pricing there's growing momentum from all stakeholders um governments consumers investors corporates to adopt these technologies as we become increasingly aware of the consequences of not doing so um and so we're looking to find um the the best companies within the value chains of these technologies and as i mentioned before we take a rather broad approach on the basis that our view is we're going to have to decarbonize every aspect of our lives so it's not simply enough to decarbonize power with, with renewables or transport with electric vehicles we're going to have to decarbonize every aspect of our lives. Someone was pointing out the um the very different impact on different economies. Um and, and really, you know, quite radical differences really. Um I presume you're taking that into account as well as you as you allocate. Regional differences do have an impact, especially early on in a technology's life where it's more reliant on subsidies. There we take into account um the stability and the visibility of that regulatory framework. um because we don't want to be investing in a technology where all subsidies get abandoned and then adoption uh the pace of adoption falls to zero. Um but in terms of the more mature technologies and I use mature loosely I'm but I, I'm talking about the technologies where market forces are driving adoption because these are cheaper solutions or because they offer a payback. 
um, things like renewables, industrial automation, many of the building solutions that are available today, and insulation is a great example of that. These are these are global industries with global players where we're seeing broad adoption across multiple regions that's um, not contingent on subsidy support. Um, and there, regional differences are, are less of a factor. And Chris, how do you navigate all of this um, in fixed income? Well, in much the same way as, uh, as Cornelia, so we are, we are looking for companies that uh, can provide um, you know solutions or you know operate throughout the value chain, decarbonize their upstream and downstream operations to have a meaningful reduction. Um, on on carbon emissions, but in addition to that, obviously, as as fixed income investors, we're um, you know we're quite a sort of uh, glass um, you know half empty uh, uh, a lot. So you know we're always thinking about the downside uh, scenarios, and and you know the one thing I can say is the sort of. Uh, uh, reasonable bear case scenarios that Salman has just uh, articulated are definitely not priced into into fixed income markets at the moment. So, you know, we're looking at you know the physical risks in addition to the transition risks that uh, the companies that we uh, lend money to uh, face, uh, and, and obviously to do that we are relying on our you know extensive network of uh, fundamental um, credit and equity analysts to to surface those risks and identify companies that are particularly exposed to you know to changes in extreme weather events or, um, you know, continued uh, um, uh, increases in temperature. So it, it's very much on a on a company-by-company yeah, company basis because obviously, you know, uh, most companies that we invest in will be, you know, will be global. They will have assets in, in, in different areas of the world and therefore um, will have different exposures. So it, it very much requires a... Uh, a line-by-line approach to identifying climate risk. And the influence that you have as a fixed income investor is um, still potent, but it's quite different to the way that equities um, uh, operate. Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, there is a, a sort of preconception that um, uh, bond investors uh, can't engage or can't influence companies uh, in the way that uh, equity investors can. And of course, you know, the mechanism that we that we use is different. We don't have a vote in the same way that uh, you know Cornelia does. But you know, what we do have um, is you know we do provide uh, capital to companies on an ongoing basis. So there are plenty of uh, companies that will come to market um, over the course of any given 12-month period, three, four, five times uh, a year. And obviously, that gives us multiple touch points at which we're able to say to those companies, we're not entirely comfortable with the direction of travel that you're taking with respect to climate. Additionally, there are plenty of companies who don't have public equity or where the, the, the majority of uh, um, their share capital is held by you know private um, individuals or, or, or organisations. There, we can have an influence um, on uh, on management in a way that obviously um, you know uh, equity can't. So, you know, we are the only public face, if you like, of um, uh, a public stakeholder uh, in, in in that process. So, um, you know, fixed income investors can can certainly have uh, an impact. We you know we have a number of active engagements ongoing where. Um, management of companies are extremely keen to hear what we have to say about um, the way that we think they should be mitigating risks going forward. So you've you've both got a voice in, uh, and you're able to represent um, both your your clients' um, uh, interests and um, broader aims as well to the the companies that you invest in. 
there are some reasons to be optimistic there, but we know there are challenges ahead. Salman, you've spoken about the importance of standardization of a global framework, and Fidelity has been involved in developing um, one aspect of that. Can you set out the advantages? How likely is it that we'll get a global framework when thinking about things like carbon pricing? Firstly, uh, I would mention that uh, something similar like this has already been done and and not too uh, long ago. So after the 2008-2009 crisis, uh, when the banking sector uh, regulations came through, uh, the world did come together. Uh, The world did understand uh, and and overcame uh, the differences when it came to arbitrage opportunities. And and that showed up in Basel IV framework, which was a very comprehensive framework of, 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 of making the banking sector safer. So a similar, I think, exercise will be needed for carbon prices um, because at the macro level, if one country uh, goes through and produce uh, and puts a sizable carbon price on the economy, it can also lead to a very significant competitive disadvantage uh, versus countries which do not have a carbon price and because ultimately carbon prices are a tax from an economic perspective. So I think uh, if there is a, a common assessment and common ag- agreement that this is uh, the climate change is so important and 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 countries can overcome their domestic political economies then Basel 4 gives a very uh, good uh, you know example that the world can come together and and, and tackle uh, an issue which is systemic and existential in the case of uh, climate change so that is a good and encouraging precedent, isn't it? That the world can come together to solve what apparently very, very difficult um, problems. But the catalyst then was a, a disaster on global markets and the freezing up of um, the financial system. What will it take this time? I ask all three of you, actually. What's, what's going to be the equivalent? Is it the submerging of London beneath the waves? Um, or can we sort this out before we get to that stage? Chris, let me ask you, what's going to be the catalyst? Uh, as I said, I'm a fixed income investor. I'm a generally uh, quite a depressing uh, individual. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I believe it will take something similar for us to, to get a global coordinated response. And I think we're, we're starting to see that okay. now. But I think the level of urgency that, um, uh, that that we've seen so far is not is not yet great enough. And I, and I do fear that it will require... Um, you know, a significant increase in uh, extreme weather events, temperatures uh, to really... Uh, shake up, um, you know, politicians and, and, and global investors to, to act in a more meaningful way. I wish I hadn't asked you now, actually, yeah, but I, um, I, I did. <laughs> um, I, I should put the question to Cornelia. Do you do you have a different point of view, or do you agree? So, as an equities investor, I'm probably more naturally an optimist, <laughs> especially one that's investing in the solutions to this crisis. Um, but what I would say is, from an optimistic standpoint, the solutions exist today to get us 80% of the way to net zero. And the other 20% can be met by technologies that don't yet exist or um, carbon reduction or carbon removal technologies. But the other thing is that climate change is happening today. And I think there is increasing recognition and increasing momentum behind the support for getting us to net zero. It's no longer just Europe leading the way. We're seeing the US and now China responding. Uh, And I think um, I'm more optimistic that we will see growing momentum um, behind uh, achieving net zero. Now, whether it will be sufficient, I, I don't know. But there are plenty of grounds to be optimistic. 
Okay, I, I'm going to I'm going to seize on that, and I'm going to come back to you, Chris, to ask you for some signs of encouragement because there's an iron ore uh, miner which I know um, you've followed in the past that has come up with some impressive targets that does seem to be leading the way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll, um, so as, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I think the, uh, the, the basic material sector has um, uh, has been largely absent from from the green bond space, and, and that's disappointing, um, uh, particularly given that uh, you know basic materials are going to be an essential component of decarbonisation. So whether that be the the steel and cement that goes into into wind farms or minerals that go into uh, electric vehicles, you know, they're, they're all going to be required for decarbonisation. Um, so one, you know, particular interesting case that uh, that we've been following is uh, Fortescue in, in in Australia. It's uh, as you say, it's an iron ore miner. Um, they had already been, you know, at the sort of forefront, if you like, of uh, decarbonisation efforts in, in the industry, and, and they recently came out with some pretty ambitious targets to eliminate their emissions on a scope three basis. So, just as a reminder, scope three is all your upstream and, and downstream uh, emissions by 2040. Now, for a iron ore producer, their scope three emissions. Uh, 98% of that comes from steel production. Um, so essentially what they were saying is that the all of the iron ore that they will sell by 2040 will go to uh, steel producers who do not use coking coal. Uh, and as part of that, uh, they're developing technologies and, and the supply of, of green hydrogen to, um, uh, to their clients. So uh, that we thought was a really interesting approach. Uh, it is certainly industry leading in terms of um, uh, having a scope three target for for a miner, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, there, there there isn't another miner that has those that, that that level of target at the moment. Well, and that's the the crux of all of this, isn't it, Chris? Because um, you're almost relying there on the goodwill of um, companies that perhaps we don't necessarily associate with it, um, or the, the the sectors that we don't necessarily associate with it. There has to be a policy stick as well. Someone, um, the policymakers, let's think about them attending COP26. How should we think about their role, the role of governments and institutions as opposed to the private sector? Um, how should central banks, for example, be regarded? You know, where, where is the front line in all of this? So let, let me start with the central banks. Um, so they are not the front line. Uh, and uh, more and more we engage with them, they actually do make the point that uh, they feel sometimes a lot of pressure uh, to to be on the front line, even though it is subsidies and taxation and really fiscal policy, which can be the most powerful force in driving uh, emissions down. So for, just to give you an extreme example, uh, uh, overnight, if uh, proper pricing on carbon comes through, which the government can do, uh, and and subsidies for the technologies uh, which are uh, which can play a role in mitigating emissions, which again the governments can do, uh, you can make a big dent on on emissions. But of course, there are costs of doing that. So where the central banks are coming through is the, uh, through two angles. The first one is financial stability. So uh, the idea that if carbon prices go up and not a lot of immediate action is taken uh, and, and creating a scenario where carbon prices go up rapidly uh, and, and there are forced changes to the system, uh, then what does that do to, uh, uh, to the loan books of different sectors? This is the motivation behind the climate stress test, which the ECB, Bank of England are doing. Uh, they're going to throw out a lot of data uh, and a lot of uh, uh, data which is organized uh, in a way which makes sense to, to policymakers. The second angle is uh, is signaling, 
which is, for example, greening of, of QE or including uh, capital uh, requirements which are based on climate change, which, by the way, China is already doing. Uh, that signals to the market and the private sector that central banks are very serious about this transition. And, you know, just making commitments will not be enough. You will have to show action as well. So governments have a big role to play. Central banks certainly have a big role to play. But I would consider them as second line of defence rather than the first line of defence. Okay, so down to the politicians. Cornelia, if that's the big picture, what's your sense amongst the companies that you talk to in terms of how much stick and how much carrot they need in order to uh, make the progress that's required? So it really depends on a, on a company-by-company basis and on a technology-by-technology basis. We've talked a lot about subsidies, um, which remain critical for these emerging technologies. We've got this great playbook of the renewables and where subsidies have been incredibly successful in bringing these technologies to cost parity and actually a situation where they're cheaper than, than the traditional methods of power generation, um, which is driving adoption. But the stick is necessary too, because natural rates of adoption aren't going to be sufficient to get us to net zero by 2050. If we take renewables again, because there's a lot of great data for renewables, 9% of global output comes from wind and solar today. So we need to install more than 16 times what has been installed over the last 25 years in order to get the power sector, which represents less than 30% of global emissions, to net zero. And that's where the stick really comes into play. How do you accelerate adoption? Um, And what we need to see here is a combination of support and also mechanisms that make the old ways of doing things less viable. So we see more capital channeled into the right ways of doing or the greener ways of doing things. And Chris, you've already talked about some new ways of financing companies that are um, uh, related to um, reduction in carbon emissions. Um, What innovation is there yet to happen? What would you like to see um, as a a means of being able to um, to steer things, whether whether it's his carrot or stick. Yeah, well, I, you know, I already touched on the uh, sustainability linked bond market or KPI linked bond market, which uh, I think is uh, you know is probably a key area that we need to see you know further development of. I think there's been some criticism of that market as uh, being a little bit of a giving companies a little bit of an easy ride. So either the the targets are too easy to meet or the coupon steps are are not meaningful enough. I would probably accept and agree with with, with both of those criticisms. I think it's... uh, there isn't enough of a financial penalty for, for, for companies to, to fail to meet those those objectives. So I would like to see a little bit more development, a bit more teeth in, in that market to encourage companies to you know really decarbonize quickly. Um, however, I would also say that, that you know those instruments are that they're a mechanism, a Trojan horse, if you like, for investors to uh, to get in to uh, speak with management of the companies, understand their their, their targets and their objectives uh, uh, more closely, and then of course to 
you know, sort of hold their feet to the fire and ensure that they do meet those those objectives. And of course, that we can we can push them to to to, to go even further. So, you know, I think the the development of the sustainability linked bond market is one one area. We've already talked about the green bond uh, market and its deficiencies, the fact that it hasn't financed um, you know large swathes of the uh, the global economy. We just don't have. Uh, green financing, obviously, green green bonds are a use of proceeds type approach. We need to see the the maturation of uh, the, the the green bond market um, uh, as well. But I think we have to be a little bit careful not to you know proliferate too many uh, instruments because that just introduces complexity and uh, into the market and therefore makes it difficult for end investors to really understand what they're what they're getting. Okay, we could carry on, but I'm afraid we're out of time. So, uh, but not before we play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? And Salman, I'm going to come to you first, if I may. Your hot cakes, please. So my hot cake for the next 20 years is carbon, carbon prices. Um, <laughs> long-term uh, investing long-term investing permanent investing <laughs> with all the cycles around it uh, I think that would be very critical to facilitate that technology adoption I think uh, Cornelius uh, was talking about financing of uh, uh, green financing uh, which Chris was talking about so definitely a hot cake okay and your hot potatoes what would you drop I would drop, I think, any sector which is very high emissions for the permanently going forward. Uh, if if that uh, were to come through, then you can see how they can get negatively affected. That's a bit of a blanket um, bet there, isn't it? I wonder whether you've stolen the um, the thunder from our other guests. But let me come to Cornelia next. Cornelia. So my hot cake would be um, reuse or rental platforms. I think this is a particularly interesting new area, which is um, enabling consumers individuals like you and me to um, prolong the natural life of our goods, whether they be clothes or kitchen appliances, um, and also requires fewer of them in the first place. If we're all using these items more often and sharing them amongst multiple households rather than each having a, whatever it might be, bread maker at home might take a little bit of adjustment, um, mental adjustment for people to get used to it. But that's an interesting, um, interesting bit there. It's funny you should say that because what we're seeing in certain pockets is much more willingness to purchase secondhand. So uh, we're invested in a company that does a survey. And what you've seen is that the percentage of women who are willing, prepared to buy secondhand has gone from 50 to 70% in the last five years. And what I've observed is that there's almost a sort of braggability about it. You know, it's not just, um, oh, this is secondhand, but don't mention it to anyone. It's a case of, ah, oh, yes, actually, this I bought this off a secondhand platform and look at my environmental credentials. A really good example there. And your hot potatoes, what would you drop? So an area that I'm a little wary of is biofuels for two reasons. Firstly, where they're reliant on, on primary crop production. Um, because that's going to become increasingly challenged in an environment where we see population growth and also changing weather patterns. Um, but also for the second reason that there isn't really a path to um, competitiveness for biofuels. So I think we could see them used um, in areas where there are no other solutions. But I think in the long term, we're going to see biofuels um, substituted by newer technologies like fuel cells. And finally, Chris, let me come to you. Your hot cakes. Yeah, well, uh, I was just uh, uh, scribbling out the uh, carbon pricing uh, uh, answer that I did have. So um, 
I'll, I'll come to my that's backup the, that's answer. That's the danger on this um, on this program of going <laughs> last in the list. But um, go ahead. Exactly. Um, so actually, you know, and I know it's, it is related to uh, carbon pricing, but it's uh, it's carbon capture uh, technologies. That's that's where I would be uh, looking at because obviously, if we are in an environment where carbon pricing uh, is significantly higher than than, than where we are today, uh, then that will make carbon capture uh, technologies viable. Uh, I think it's also essential um, to to the achievement of net zero for the reasons that we've already covered about uh, not being urgent and, and rapid enough in the uh, in the reduction of emissions. So I think carbon capture is an interesting area to, to explore. And what's out of favour for you? What's, what are your hot potatoes? Uh, well, again, I did, I did have the, the coal sector, uh, which, but I think that probably comes under the high emissions space. So I'm, I'm going to be a little bit controversial. And uh, you know, strictly from an environmental perspective, I'm going to say um, uh, you know, digital currencies. So I won't name any particular one, but uh, you know, one of the most uh, popular uh, digital currencies uh, has a, um, a carbon footprint of about 270 tonnes, which is... The same as running 60 uh, internal combustion engine vehicles for, for, for 12 months. So that's a pretty hefty uh, carbon footprint for um, speculating on, on, on the value of uh, a digital currency. So that, that, that's what I'll I, I think I think you might be referring to Bitcoin. And we I might should, be, yeah. um, We yeah. should say that other digital currencies <laughs> are available. Um, but uh, a good reminder of the uh, the problems there. Thank you. I'm afraid that brings us to the end of this episode, but you can hear more on this and other investment topics on either of our award-winning Rich Pickings or Fidelity Answers podcasts. Just search for either of those titles in your podcast app. You can also read more on COP26 and sustainable investing on your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. Thank you to my guests, Cornelia First, Chris Atkinson, Salman Ahmed and Andrew McCaffrey. The producer today is Seb Morton-Clark with technical production by Connor Bailey and Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website.